If you're using the Bibles in your seats, that's page 710. We're looking at verses 30 to 34. And as we begin, I have a confession to make. As most of you know, a group of CBCers went up to Boston a couple weekends ago for a workshop on discipleship and mission. And, and for those who went, it was inspiring and it was challenging and it gave us this grand big picture from the Bible about our task as, as followers of Jesus to, to make disciples and to participate in God's mission. And afterwards, uh, near the end of the conference, the group came, group came up to me who were there from our church and, and a few people kind of challenged me and said, why haven't you told us this? And, uh, you, you know, they said... You, you've talked about making disciples and, and being missional, but why didn't you tell us that it was this big? <laughs> and, and my first thought, a little defensive maybe, was, well, I have told you. But, but isn't that just how it is? You hear it a bunch of times from someone familiar, and, and then someone new says it, and then it really sticks. Uh, but, but then my next thought was, well, well, maybe I didn't make it that clear. Um, Maybe I haven't been consistent enough in, in sharing my vision for CBC. After all, I lose track. I get distracted by all the various day-to-day -day issues and responsibilities, and I can lose sight of the bigger picture. And uh, then I had a third thought, though. And um, it was one that really struck home to my heart. As we, we sometimes say around here, it was a Kairos moment for me. It was that thing that makes me think, boy, I've really got to pay attention to this. There's something here I need to notice. And, and it's the thing that I want to confess to you here this morning. And that is that maybe I haven't had the courage to share the vision that's in my heart as boldly or as clearly as I should. Maybe I'm afraid that, that it will be rejected or dismissed as unrealistic or even viewed as threatening to all the good stuff that God is already doing at CBC. Or, or maybe I'm afraid that it won't really happen. And, and that if I go on record as expecting God to do mighty things, and, and if they don't happen, then I'll be embarrassed. So anyway, I was convicted that I need to, to share that vision and to speak it out loud. Maybe this is more for my own relationship with God than for you. Um, so that's what I want to do this morning. And, and to begin with, CBC has a vision, right? We desire to be transformed by God for love and for mission in a changing world. First of all, we want to be transformed in our love. To be, to be transformed by God, to be a more loving people, a people who care, a people who forgive, a people who are a family. A, a family both for those who are here, but then also a welcoming family for the sake of others who aren't here yet. And so we also want to be transformed for mission in a changing world. We recognize that the world's changing around us. That the ways the church used to find effective in being the church and, and reaching out aren't as effective anymore. Particularly with the younger generations who've, who voted with their feet by walking out the door, not only of CBC, but of churches in general in this country. And, and so we want to be a people who can engage in God's mission in a way which is true to God's word and, and to the gospel, which doesn't change, and yet at the same time is intelligible and resonates with today's culture. So, so what does that transformation for love and mission look like? Well, we've experienced some of it already. We are learning to love each other, to, to bear with one another's differences, to be patient with one another's annoyances, to, to make time in our busy lives to be there for one another. 
And, and we, you know, we just had a recent example of this. As we know, Joe was sick in the hospital a, a couple weeks ago, and yet he and Sharon had to move last week. And, you know, last Tuesday, we had about two dozen people show up at their house to help them move in, a lot of them from this church. And we've, that's been the case for others as well who, who have, have had to move. So we've experienced this as a church. Um, we've also experienced some transformation for mission, not only for love, but for mission. We've discussed and practiced new ways as a church to share our faith. We've made some practical changes like upgrading and beautifying our building and our website and other things. We've also begun experimenting over the past few years with, with new ways to reach out and mission together, to, to grow as disciples of Jesus together. And, and along the way, we've tried some things and, and we've seen some successes. We've experienced some failures and, and we've learned valuable lessons in the process. In, in fact, talk about this being a learning curve for us. You may know I've spent the past three years working on a doctorate on this subject of disciple and mission because I realize there's a lot to be learned. But, but where is all of this headed? And what will it look like if we really succeed? Well, I'd like to look at today's passage for some answers. Jesus here is teaching his disciples what the kingdom of God is like. Now, what's the kingdom of God? That word shows up a lot in the stories of Jesus, but what is the kingdom of God? It's not the church. It's not any one institution or organization. Rather, the kingdom of God is a dynamic. It's a reality. It's God's reign. It's the thing that God is doing in the world and in and through his people. Some people have put it this way. The church is the team but the kingdom of God is the game. Or the church is the vehicle, but the kingdom of God is the destination. The kingdom of God is the bigger thing that God is doing in the world. It's every person and every place and every situation where God's will is being done. Where people are being reconciled to God, where they are being freed from their addictions, refocused from their distractions, healed from their afflictions. The kingdom of God is where sinners find forgiveness and enemies find reconciliation. Where the lonely find family and the hungry find food, the jobless find purpose, the confused and despondent find meaning. This kingdom all centers around Jesus, the king, and those who are learning to follow Jesus. And Jesus says that when his kingdom fully comes, it will be large. Not confined to a special small group of people, but freely opened up to and enjoyed by lots and lots of people. In this passage, Jesus compares this kingdom to a mustard bush or to a pine tree in a modern translation. But he actually talks about a mustard bush, which in Galilee in Jesus' day could grow up to nine feet tall. From a little tiny seed. Jesus says it was the largest of all garden plants. So big that the birds could nest in its branches. And birds were often a symbol back then for the Gentiles. For the religious outsiders. For those on the outside looking in. And Jesus says that as his kingdom grows. People like that find shelter. They find a home. They find belonging in God's kingdom. 
We know from elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus' kingdom will, will never end. It will never fade away. And in the end, it will expand to fill the whole earth. When Jesus is finally King of kings and Lord of lords and recognized as such by the whole world. The prophet Daniel gives us a picture of this kingdom as being like a rock, not cut out by human hands, which grows and grows until it becomes a mighty mountain and that mountain fills the entire earth. The kingdom of God, when it fully comes, it's big. It's big enough to fill the whole world. Big enough to embrace everyone who will allow themselves to be embraced by it. So how does the kingdom come? How does it grow? Well, Jesus says it starts like a little mustard seed. The smallest of seeds planted in the garden. The kingdom starts small. It starts very small. Seemingly insignificant. Precarious. Weak. So what is that seed that starts the kingdom? Now, Jesus often uses the image of seeds in his parables. So we just have to look back to verse 14 of chapter 4, where we see that the seed in Jesus' parables, the seed represents the word of God. The word of God is the seed which seems very small, but has the potential, has the, the potency, has the life of power bound up within it to grow and grow and grow until the kingdom of God emerges and flourishes like the largest of all garden plants. Creating love, creating community, creating salvation and reconciliation and restoration and healing and wholeness. And Jesus is the sower who teaches his followers how to sow this seed, how to sow the word of God. Of course, Jesus does it how we'd expect. He preaches it. He teaches it. He proclaims it publicly to anyone who will listen. But Jesus does far more than that. Also, and just as importantly, probably even more importantly, Jesus sows the seed in the hearts of a small group of disciples. Verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Those were the crowds. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus preaches the word to the crowd, sure. But from those who respond, Jesus gathers a smaller group. And with that smaller group, Jesus sowed the seed much more deeply and carefully. Helping them to understand. Living his life with them giving them a front row seat, showing them what the word looked like as Jesus lived it out up close and personal in his own life. Along the way, Jesus rebuked his disciples. He encouraged them. He answered their questions. He took teachable moments when they were ready to understand. And in all of those ways, Jesus was sowing the seed, which is the word of God, into the lives of his disciples. It's what we call discipleship. Jesus sowing the word in the lives of his followers so that they followed him as they followed him and and he taught them in the midst of everyday life, the seed would take root and grow. And that's what it really takes for transformation to happen. It it, it starts small, a small band of men and some women with Jesus following him. 
And as I look at how Jesus went about sowing the seed, as I look at his strategy and the way he brought the kingdom, I think you could summarize it this way. Start small, go deep, think big. Let me say that again because I've tried to make this my approach to ministry, though I'm not as good at it as Jesus was. (laughs) Start small, go deep, think big. First, start small. Invest in a few. That's what Jesus did. Sure, he shared with the crowds, but he didn't expect too much from them. After all, they were the ones who in the end shouted, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus also, in addition to working with the crowds, thought small. He made it a priority to sow God's word deeply into the hearts of a few. Not just by talking about it, by living it, but by living it together. So second, after starting small, we can add going deep. We see Jesus doing that as well. We see him investing deeply in his disciples over a period of three years. Jesus took his time. He, he didn't rush. He, he let those seeds of God's word put down deep roots. He waited for God to bring about true transformation in the lives of his followers until his disciples were transformed for love and for mission. Better a few who genuinely follow Jesus and desire his kingdom to come and who don't just talk about love, but who actually learn to live out a life of love together. Better that small, deep beginning than a whole crowd of the half-hearted and fickle. Margaret Mead, the renowned anthropologist, famously said what Jesus had already known centuries before. She said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. First, start small, like a mustard seed. Second, go deep. Take time, invest, wait for God to bring the growth and the transformation. And then third, think big. Even as Jesus was investing deeply in a small band of followers in a backwater called Galilee, he had in mind nothing less than the salvation of the entire world. Nothing less than the spread of God's kingdom to every nation and every people. Until Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And God's glory covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. Jesus intended for for his kingdom, God's kingdom, one day to hold sway over the entire earth, bringing peace and goodness, bringing love and hope beyond anything that the worldly rulers even dared to, to promise, let alone deliver on then or today. Well, after Jesus' death and resurrection in the book of Acts, we begin to see that kingdom, that Jesus movement beginning to grow. Jesus' disciples go out and and now they begin to sow God's word. Like Jesus, they preach. And like Jesus, they also disciple others who in turn do the same with yet others. And pretty soon we see little bands of, of Jesus followers popping up in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and in Joppa and Antioch and Cyprus and Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and Athens and Rome. And so it continues down through history and on to today. How does it happen? How does that mustard seed grow, which started small and went deep? 
Well, missionaries and mission thinkers tell us it grows through multiplication. Not through addition, but through multiplication. Addition is where a, a church of, say, 100 re- reaches out and, and they gain a few converts. And now they're not 100 anymore. They're 104 and they're so happy they've grown. That's addition. Multiplication is different. Multiplication is when a group of, say, 12, each invest in a few others deeply. They disciple them. And so after a while, of 12, they have, say, 36. And then all of those 36, they've been discipled well enough that they're equipped to go out and disciple, say, three or four others as well. And then before they know it, they have 118. Wow, they've already passed the church of 104 and they're only getting started. And hopefully, the taste of the kingdom, the the transformation, the love, and the mission in that group of 118 is strong and palpable. That's multiplication. That's the way that Jesus went about it. And that's what we see in the early church in the book of Acts. Incidentally, if you were here last Sunday when I told you the story about the, the Lady Grace who started the prison ministry... Remember, it it began with her becoming a spiritual grandmother to one inmate. And she discipled that that inmate well enough that he was able to impact others. And so as the months and the years went by, that seed grew to seven inmates and then to inmates in three different prisons. And, And then eventually as it continued to multiply, it turned into thousands of people being touched by this one woman and the people that she discipled. That's multiplication. It involves starting small, going deep, and thinking big. And missionaries and mission thinkers tell us that the church is really healthy. The church is really thriving when it's multiplying. And it's multiplying in in the four ways that we see it multiplying in the New Testament. First, it's multiplying disciples. We just talked about that. That's what Jesus did. Second, It's multiplying leaders. All this takes leadership, right? (laughs) And and from among Jesus' band of disciples, which there were 12 and there grew to 72, he had a number of different followers, but he groomed 12 apostles to be leaders of his church and of his kingdom. So multiplying leaders is second. Third, it then grows by multiplying communities, spiritual families. Most of the churches that we see in the book of Acts weren't large public gatherings of of hundreds, but rather they were tight communities of 20 or 40 or 60, usually meeting in homes, doing life together, reaching out together. And these small communities were were networked together with one another. And, And all through the book of Acts, we see these kinds of communities growing and multiplying. Until finally we see a fourth kind of multiplication, the multiplication of mission centers. In the book of Acts, we see that some of these networks of these small communities in certain cities matured and grew together in cities like Jerusalem and Antioch and Ephesus. Until together came sending centers, sending teams out to other places to spread the movement further to new cities. So, so there you have it. That's thinking big. Multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, multiplying community, multiplying mission centers. What Jesus began, that's how the early church grew. That's what Christianity was, and in many places in the world, but it still is. 
That's how within 300 years of the time of Jesus, um, an estimated half of the Roman Empire came to follow Jesus Christ. And so that's my vision for this church and for churches like ours, that we'd see something like that happen in the Northeast. As I've said before, I dream of seeing a movement of disciples streaming out of this log cabin to take the goodness that we have here and want to have more of here, who take the kingdom of God that we experience here into every nook and cranny of northern Westchester and Putnam counties. And meanwhile, you know, a couple of us have been praying for a few years now, I think, that, that, that God would make this a reality. And I've also begun praying once a month with a, a couple other pastors on video chat. Um, and we've been praying, too, that God unleashes a movement of this kingdom in the whole Northeast. The kind that I've been describing. And I feel like a couple weeks ago in Boston, we, we got a taste of the first fruits of some of the answers to those prayers. As 81 people, many of them church leaders representing 18 or 19 different churches, gathered together to consider this vision and to relearn how Jesus taught us to go about it. It starts small with making disciples. Just sowing the word of God into the lives of a few people so that it goes deep. So that they become equipped well enough that they can turn around and invest in a few others as well. And all the while, we're thinking big. And that's the part where it takes courage <laughs> and faith. Knowing that, that we can't accomplish very much on our own, that, that we're weak, that we're full of faults and failures, and we need to extend much grace to each other. We need to constantly be confessing like Peter led us in doing this morning. And yet, we also recognize that God's word is powerful and that God desires for his people to be more like his son Jesus. And God desires for his son Jesus to be known and loved and worshipped by all peoples. That God wants to bring blessing and wholeness and peace and healing through his people to all nations. And even to the northeastern United States. And that's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> and so those little seeds have the potential to grow and to grow and to grow until they become like the largest of garden plants, so big that even the birds can come and find shelter in their branches. So there it is. That's my vision. <laughs> it begins small. It begins with a seed because that's how the kingdom of God works, Jesus tells us. And so in a minute, we're going to turn our attention to this communion table. And we'll be sharing the bread and the cup. And um, as they're passed, I'm also going to invite you to take a seed. These happen to be sunflower seeds. Contextualized to our, what was readily available in our local hardware store. Um, so I invite you to take a seed uh, as a reminder. And, and to ask yourself, if the seed is God's word, then what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? What seed is God seeking to plant in my heart? Which if I welcome it, if my heart is soft soil for it, it might grow into something great. Think about that as we sing this next song, and then we'll celebrate communion together. <laughs>